into one of the we were talking about. First of all, I want to thank the committee for making it possible for me to be here, inviting me to take part in this program. This is the first program of this particular 11th Step Retreat. I was privileged to speak on the first program of the Camp Monroe Retreat. And it's sad to get a child out of doing these things. Uh, I have enjoyed this retreat thus far, as you probably have. That may change at any moment. I was thinking about some of the talks I heard up to this time. And there's some pretty difficult people to follow. But everyone has his own story and his own experiences and his own way of putting them across. I know in AA we hear a lot about miracles. And I always like to talk about the miracle of AA. You heard something about miracles just a few moments ago from our visitors from the Hill Institution. These people who are in such position and they catch fire with a desire for betterment and do something about it and continue to do something about it in the face of seeming hopelessness, this is miraculous. I think that every person here, every alcoholic and every other person who belongs to an alcoholic or is associated with one in any form, I think perhaps he's been touched by miracles. I know that my entrance to this fellowship is nothing short of miraculous. I've often told this story. I, the way I got to AA, I came to a fellowship that was not in existence. became a member of something that wasn't going even. Uh, the mathematical chances of my ever being associated with this fellowship were practically no. I was not a... Uh, I heard something like uh, one of the speakers last night, our old friend Julian. I was not a periodic drinker. I was a chronic drinker. I was drunk all the time. This was normal operating procedure for me. And I never did get into all this jazz about DTs and this because I never gave these things a chance. I had the medicine to keep them away. Only these people had made it so tough on themselves is to get these kind of activities. But I was a chronic alcoholic. And it was a normal that there for me to be drunk. I wound up a bum. And I mean a bum. I worked myself out of a position where I could even work. Julian was making a short trip to work last night. I go along with him in a lot of his work business, but to get to the place, as far as I was it wasn't by my choice at all. I became absolutely unemployable. I often told a story about how I couldn't even get on WPA. And whether it is nothing more unemployable than that. I also mentioned one time about the fact that my ex-wife had a big interest in my going to work, naturally. And she happened to be the head of a men's department in an employment bureau. 
and she couldn't get me a job. <laughs> so I would say that as far as employment is concerned, I was about at the bottom of the barrel. I wound up on the farm, and my last class died in the resulted in my winding up in New York City. My brother-in-law took me there on his truck. Essentially, this is my last chance to be able to stay home and live a respectable life. This was predicated upon the idea to go to work with him. And I accepted the challenge. Not uh, without some reluctance, however, but I accepted it. So, I got drunk on before we ever got to New York. When we got to New York, he dumped me out on the waterfront and left me there. I can't tell you how long I stayed in New York, but I was there a long time. I did not lie around in the barley in New York. I found something better to my liking. I got myself the first gainful employment I had had in many a long day. And this gainful employment consisted of this. There were a lot of truck drivers used to drive their trucks in New York and they parked their tractors there under this overpass down by the Canard Steamship Lines on that district. And they would go get a hotel room someplace for the night or so they had to wait to get a return rent back. These fellows employed me as a watchman. A truck driver gave me 50 cents a night to watch his tractor. With this 50 cents, I was in business. If I was paying 7 cents a pint for my booze, I bought it in a wallpaper store. And with this 50 cents, I couldn't drink that much booze. It was impossible. So I saved money. I became a capitalist. I didn't have to eat. I didn't pay anything for eating, rather. I found out how to eat for free. I didn't have to buy any clothes. I had no taxes to pay. I had no old lady on my back. I had no troubles. I had no creditors. I had it made. And I was saving money. That is my condition. When I landed in New York, I had tried to get in the good graces of a sister-in-law of mine in Yonkers. And she picked me up and took me right back down at the waterfront and threw me out where her brother had thrown me previously. A good gal, one time, sometime later, had the doctor over for her youngsters. And they got to talking about drinking. And she told the doctor about the experience she had with this drunken brother-in-law who used to be a nice guy, but now is nothing but a drunken bump. He says, you know that God, I had a brother-in-law like that who was a drunk too. And he met a group of men who spent all their time trying to fix drunks. And this fellow hasn't had a drink for quite some time. And he says, furthermore, there's a doctor who seems to be in cahoots with him. This doctor is over in Akron, Ohio. And he spends all of his time fixing drugs. And if your brother-in-law here should get back to Ohio, maybe he can get down there to Akron and meet this doctor. Maybe this doctor can fix him. I don't know this is going on, of course. I'm tending to my business on the <laughs> 
they got interested in this idea about these AAs sobering up. A lot of people were starting to get off the street that used to be laying in them. And people missed them. And they found out that some of these birds are sober. Good many people are sobered up. So some of these social workers got busy, and one of them, I want to tell you the story about her, what she did to me. <laughs> this social worker would not be denied. She was a big gal, and her name was Mooney. She was big, and she was Irish. And she had some little Irish chum named Catherine that she was interested in. And she got on my back about Catherine. She insisted that Catherine was the only gal in the world that amounted to anything or should amount to anything. And she's going to see to it that I picked Catherine. Well, she should stuck with it. So every time I turn around, I get in trouble from Mooney about Catherine. Catherine, I'll tell you something about her and her background. She uh, came from very wealthy people. And she's been educated abroad. She had a good... She had wonderful opportunities at one time in her life. She's quite a gal. Catherine broke up one of her uncle's homes when she was 15 years old. She was a swing of gal. <laughs> and at the time that I met Catherine, she was living with some Italian bootleggers in a colored neighborhood. And there was nothing, nothing but nothing that Catherine wouldn't do for a drink. And Catherine was quite a character. She spent a good deal of her life. In fact, I think she was spending her a life sentence on the installment plan in the woman's workhouse at Warrensville. How many times she'd been out there, God only knows, but she was she knew every nook and cranny of this place. I think she took charge when she went out there. Anyway, Mooney thought that Catherine had possibilities, and this is a real challenge. So poor Catherine and poor old me. I had to work with her. Catherine, I finally got her sober enough to take her to a meeting, and the women threw her out. They wouldn't have her. I might say that Catherine was Irish, and she had all the mouth that goes with the good Irishman. Uh, she also was... Uh, she used to teach sailors how to swear. <laughs> she was dirty, she was profane, she stumped, and she was really something. So I took her to this meeting, and uh, we were meeting in a home at the time. The women there would have no part of Catherine, so out she went. I mean, almost me with her. Well, I really wouldn't let me cut loose from her, so I had to do what I could with Catherine. I took her down to Akron to a few meetings. I took her to a few picnics and things like that. But Catherine would keep on getting drunk. So I'm walking down Euclid Avenue one day, down near 82nd in Euclid, in Cleveland, busy, nice, good noon time. All the people are coming out of the business places going to lunch. And here's Catherine coming down the street and she's staggering all over the place, dressed in on paper. So I think I'm going to do a boy scout. You take Catherine home. I don't want her to land in a sneezer again, so take her home. So I'm getting along all right for about a block or so. So Catherine decides she wants something to eat. Well, Catherine isn't, isn't in any condition to eat, but she thinks so. And I, I 
sense of humor, so I think, all right, I'll run her in this street joint down here and get her a fat sandwich and get her home. But she won't have this street joint. Captain has been raised better than that. Captain wants a plate for tablecloth. And there's the first big mistake I ever made with Captain. Outside of meeting her. So I tell the captain we're going home. We don't eat this time. So, so 
it's time for home. If that crossing that traffic, uh, that traffic light, and Catherine gets an idea, she feels a call of nature. Right in the middle of the thousands of people walking up and down and she squats. I stand there holding her hand. In a few minutes, the wagon came again. Where it came from, I don't know. The people stopped. They really left the passers by the cops. And they looked and they made remarks, and Catherine returned the compliment. And the next thing you know, we're in the wagon again. Well, here we go. Routine. I get down there, I'm the same trouble again. It's a different bunch on this time. Mm-hmm. A different crew on this afternoon. And I get to that same routine. They finally got Crowley again, and Crowley came down. He really thought this was great. I didn't. So he got me out to make up Catherine again. Well, here's the balance of this story. It, it seems funny now. It is funny. It wasn't funny then to me. Probably to an opposite, it probably was. So this is quite tragic at the time. But I told Moon that this has got to cut out. It is getting monotonous. We can't keep with this up anymore. We got to do some with Catherine. So we fixed her up. It was easy to fix Catherine. We, we arranged to give her a year. They gave her a year as a habitual in the woman's workhouse at Warrensville. And the way she went. But Catherine, of course, knew that I had something to do with this. And so I dare not go out and see her. I got murdered. So I waited. Several weeks later, Catherine sent for me. Matron sent word that Catherine wanted to see me. So I was living in a lousy $10 a week boarding house at that time. We were talking about tonight. One of the ladies here knows a fellow in Atlanta that came to that boarding house and got us some doctrination. And I was living in this joint. I had no money. I was making 20 bucks a week and paying 10 of it to room and board. And the rest of it, I had to take care of my clothes and squander on women. Uh, and AA. And so, uh, I went to the dime store and did some shopping for Catherine before I went out to the workhouse. I bought her some gumdrops and some sink water and some powder and some cigarettes. I think I must have spent at least 60, 65 cents on her, which is a big deal. I'm the last of the big fingers. And so I take this out to see Catherine. That's one grooming place is about 15, 20 miles out of town. So I went out there, and boy, oh boy, when Catherine was called to see me, boy, did she let loose. I heard things from Catherine that I never knew were ever, you know, she mixed up words. <laughs> she had them, and I got them. But she finally ran out of gas. And I gave her my little peace offering, and she took it. She wanted to get out of there, so she wanted us out of there. I said, no, Catherine, you're not going to get out of here. You're in here for a year, and you're going to stay here for a year. You're not going to get out. Make up your mind. This is it. So once you're going to do something, you just start out to do. You start out to do a year here, and you're going to do it. Well, 
Eventually, she resigned herself to it. I went out to see Catherine every week. All the time she's there. Most of the time, twice a week, I go out. Here. And Catherine, they put her in a hospital out there. And Catherine actually, I think, had everything from dandruff to fallen ashes. And ingrown toenails and athlete's foot. She had it all. And it took them a long time to clean her up. They didn't have all these wonder drugs there, you know. But eventually they got her cleaned up, and Catherine was doing all right. And she was, I might say, the skinny of the match. She went out there, and she was really emaciated. They tightened her up, and she came out of there a year later, and Mooney got her a job as a lifeguard on one of the city beaches. And Catherine worked on that job all summer long, so it's closed. Then she got her a job in one of the hotels as a room clerk. She picked up the keys as people went out. And Catherine worked on that job, and she started to take up her study of typing and shorthand. She'd done this once before, and so she got herself worked up on this. And eventually, Catherine got herself a job as a stenographer. Mooney didn't get this job. Catherine got this job. Mooney got the other people. She got a stenographic job. She worked at that, and eventually she got promoted to a secretary. Catherine saved her money. Mooney had gotten her a nice place to stay when she came out, out with some Polish people way out of another part of town. They knew nothing about alcoholics or rummies or anything. And Catherine took an interest in young people's work in her church. She was a Catholic. And she went to work in a church. And she, she was good at this stuff. She really was. She was a church. And she saved her money, and Catherine finally eventually went into the real estate business and became a wealthy woman. She's now retired living down in Florida as a story boy. Now, when I think of Catherine, I know that there isn't a person in the world who, if they have the proper attitude and given half a chance, can't make good on this program. Somebody comes around and gives me a lot of belly on how they hear from some of them. I think it's Catherine. And then it gives me the courage to tell people what they can do and where they can go. And Catherine taught me a good many things. Now, Catherine never took up with AA. She didn't feel that she wanted to after the reception she got, but she's still a sober woman. She's as big as a house now, but she's sober. And has had a successful life. Catherine learned the principles of how to live, and she applied them. But we, you and I here, learn. You know, coming to AA, anybody can get sober. It doesn't take any genius to become sober. But it takes something to stay that, stay that way. It takes a staying power. It takes doing something. I hear a lot of things in AA meetings about how you can do this program or how you can choose this and choose that and all this kind of crap. But believe me, this is not just as far as I'm concerned. I think there's a technique to this. I think there's a way to do it. And if a person doesn't do it according to the way it's prescribed, he may not get drunk, but he's going to miss an awful lot. The chances are most of them will get drunk. I can speak with authority on this because I have seen a good deal of this. The first two years and a half that I was in this fellowship, after we started in Cleveland, I must say, I, I've been in the fellowship some time we started there. 
I kept records of people who came in, and I had that opportunity to keep records of people. I knew them all. All of them went through my hands to come in there. I found it to be an activity. So I got all the inquiries that came through to newspapers, anything, anywhere off in New York or any place. They all came in at first. So I had a good chance to take care of and keep records on people for quite some time until it got out of hand completely. But I can remember that keeping records on several hundred people, and after two years and a half, 91% of them never had a drink. Remember that. Now, if any group can tie that or come close to it or come within 10% of it now, I'll kiss your foot. I'll eat your hat like they say on TV. Now, why is there a difference? People ask me this. Why? We were talking about this last night. A couple of us sitting around talking. Why? People get concerned. They should be concerned. For that very reason, the people come here and you give a drunk a choice of what he can do and tell him to make up his own program. This is suicide for a rummy. There's a program of 12 steps in AA, and these have all been written in the past tense, which indicates that someone has used them and done them, and it has been successful. <coughs> I don't care what fellowship, what club, what lodge, what organization, or what church, or whatever you might want to join, or align yourself with, there are certain things required of it. If you want to join the Masons, there are certain things you're supposed to attest to. If you want to join the KSC, you find something else. If you want to join the church, you have to stand for something. A fellow says if you don't stand for something, you're very apt to fall for most anything. So we have to stand for something. What we stand for in AA is this 12-step program. If we could have gotten by with four steps, seven steps, nine steps, or eleven steps, or what have you, We'd have gladly done it. We'd have gotten by with two. But it took 12. And why did it take 12? I'll tell you why. I was here when these, as you heard, when these steps were written. I was in on the writing of these steps. And I know the purpose of them. And I know the origin of them, where they came from. These are nothing that we just dreamed of. There's a certain routine that these steps represent. The old Oxford movement used to talk about life-changing. And this is a life-changing process. As long as this world has been going on for thousands and thousands and thousands of years, as long as history is recorded, there has been alcoholics, and we've heard about them. They've been recorded in history, they've been recorded in the Bible, they've been recorded in ancient history. The first reference to anyone getting drunk in the Bible, you can look right in the first right in Genesis and find out what happened to old Noah on the ark. Read that and see what happened to him. He really went on a real bust. Yeah. And there's plenty of other ones that this happened to. This is not yesterday. This is a long time ago. You read about things in ancient history, you read of all down through history, the exploits of alcoholics. You also read about efforts which were put into effect to try and curb alcoholism or overcome it, or overcome the alcoholic, he's one of the three. And nothing ever was successful until the idea comes along that this is not just something that a person does because he's just a no-good so-and-so. 
There's something wrong with an alcoholic. A person is obsessed with this thing of alcoholism. And there's no way of fixing him without his whole life changing. So in the Oxford movement, the alcoholic was given the opportunity of having his life changed. And to change a person's life, there are certain things that have to be apparent. First of all, there has to be a need for a change. The person's all right, he's perfect, nothing wrong with him. What should he change for? Let's go on through the same way we are. So obviously, any Romney certainly needs a change. He sure does. Our program has all the elements in it which, if you put them together and apply them, accept them, believe them, use them, your life will be changed. Now, we come to this fellowship. Why do we land here? I told you how I got here. How come I got here? How come you got here? Thousands and thousands of other people will never get here. And millions and millions of people, people who walked across the face of this earth before we were ever on it, lived, existed, and died in misery as alcoholics. And carried a lot of their friends and family with them in this disgrace and misery. They never had this chance. You and I have a chance. You and I have been exposed to this. You and I are blessed. This is only by the grace of God that we have this. It isn't because we deserve it. Is there any rummy out here that deserves that he gets here? My heavens are better. You see a fellow walk into AA? Just think about this for a minute. A guy walk in here, a gal. They're broke. They're penniless. They haven't got a home, they have no clothes, if their feet are on the ground, their hind ends out of their britches, they have no place to go, they're dirty, they think they're, they're scared of death, hopeless, and they come in here, what happens? You see them, the same person, a few weeks later, they don't recognize him. He's all together different. He's got patches on his britches or he's got a new pair. His bare feet are not the ground anymore. He's got some shoes that match. I used to have a brown one and a black one. I used to probably get shoes that match. You get a, maybe a coat that matches his pants, even. You get a little jingle in the pocket, get a job, and you, most and the best of all, you've inherited a lot of friends. And people here will pay attention to you and make a fuss over you. All the people before have made a big fuss over you, all right? They want to get you out of the way. They want to avoid you. That's about the story. It changes. This happens off quickly with our story. Now, who among us deserves this? And why do you get chosen? And why do I get chosen? A lot of other people don't. This is something we should ask ourselves. Whether we get the answer to it or not, I think that it behooves each and one of us to be very, very thankful. No matter what our circumstances uh, happen to be, we should be most thankful that we are chosen for this opportunity. Now then, what we do with this opportunity, this is what's important. We're given this chance. And every person comes here, something happens to it. He's touched with something. He is touched. He never gets space over it all. Something has happened to him. He never forgets the experience of having been exposed to AA. He just don't forget it. It'll even ruin his drinking for it. If nothing else. He's never the same. Because he knows there is a way out. Now, I have learned many years ago 
in dealing with people coming to AA. As far as I personally am concerned, I know how to qualify a person in my sight as far as a person is concerned that I may be able to help. I don't know about some of you. Maybe you'll have to knock your brains out the way I did to learn this. But I know that there have to be certain things at times when a person comes to this fellowship. If I'm going to have any kind of success with him at all in helping him to begin a new way of life and stay with it, affect the change. First of all, a person must be an alcoholic, and he must admit it. Now, I didn't make this up. This, has, this all comes from the big book. Remember this. <coughs> Second thing that I want to know about a fellow is what does he want to do about it? There's a lot of alcoholics, and they'll admit they are. They don't want to do anything about it. Some do. Okay, says he wants to quit. Okay, the big important thing now is I ask him the next question. Okay, you're an alcoholic and you want to quit. Here's, here's what separates them. I ask this fellow, what are you willing to do to quit drinking forever? What are you willing to do to quit drinking forever? I understand I didn't say anything about quitting drinking for an hour or 24 hours or a day or anything else. I said forever. And that's exactly what I mean. I want to know how interested this fellow is. You hear a lot of funny answers to this. A lot of quibbling around sometimes. But I want this fellow to tell me he's willing to do anything to quit drinking forever. Get along with the authority for that. Am I taking his inventory? What am I doing? I don't mind if I take his inventory. Who else is going to take it? Here's how I get the authority, right in the fifth chapter of that book of ours. There's a sentence in there that's so important. And a lot of us overlook it so we don't hear it very well. It says in that fifth chapter, if you want what we have, and if you're willing to go to any length to get it, now you already take some steps. There's where the authority comes for it. An alcoholic is a type of individual People disagree with me on this. I believe this wholeheartedly. An alcoholic is a type. Everyone can't be an alcoholic. This is a privilege reserved for a chosen few. Believe me. And I think you can take an alcoholic and you can catalog him by characteristics. I'll tell you a few of his characteristics. I've never seen an alcoholic yet who was not a high-strung individual. I've never seen one that didn't have a wealth of imagination. I've never seen one that wasn't a, an extremist. Never anything but halfway major to the rummy. When he works, he works hard, he plays, he plays hard, when he gets drunk, he makes a career of it. He's an idealist. He sure is. He sure is. And he's a very sensitive soul. He's always going around looking for someone to hurt his feelings. And he's, he's a shot. He's a conniver. He's a biggest liar that ever shoes. And he'll steal anything, including a red hot stove. If it has to be done, he'll do it. When it comes to the weather, all to get that booze, if he has to do it, he'll do it. The economic pinch it down, he'll drink anything. I know there's a lot of people coming in, since I have, who have only drank themselves down to their second last yacht. I know this. 
We admit that we are powerless over alcohol, that our lives have become unmanageable. If we don't admit that, we have no place to start. So that's the first phase. Second phase of our program runs from the second through the seventh step. I choose to call it the phase of submission. We have admission, now we have submission. These are the steps in which we submit our will and our life to the care of God. Listen while these read. Second step is we seem to believe that a power greater than ourselves should restore us to sanity. You heard a lot about sanity last night. Two, that referred to. That was talking about that second step. All two is talking to this theme last night about sanity. What right has any running to take umbrage about this sanity step? Of course you will. I don't say, well, I wasn't insane. Brother, well, when you're sober about five years and think about it, you'll be glad somebody will tell you you're not. Absolutely. I'm glad that somebody told me I was not. Just let me out and let me off the hook. Some of the things I did, boy, if I was a nut, they should have shot me. That's for sure. Okay. We came to believe that part of the way that I thought we saw it Why did I come to believe this? I came to believe this because of the inspiration of these men whom I met in that hospital, in Akron City Hospital, who came and visited me. These fellows were real lummies. They were all older men than I was. And they had been around this path. And they told me the stories of their lives and what happened to them. They were sober. Some of them just a few weeks and a few months, but they were sober. And I wanted to be one of them. And they told me the power to help them. So I wanted this power to help me. I wanted to believe it would help me. They told me it would, and I wanted to believe it. The power of example is what helped me, and I think it does it with many of us. That's why you and I all have responsibilities here to be a little example of somebody coming in. Third step, it says here, we made a decision. Can you imagine when we making a decision? Here's where we start separating the men from the boys. Now remember, we have to do something in AA. We made a decision to turn our will and our life over to the care of God. Now that's asking an awful lot of a running coming to AA. Fellow comes in here and he has lost all contact with God, willfully or otherwise, and he's probably scared the death of him and has very, very peculiar notions about who he may be. I haven't discussed this with people. I probably discussed this thing about God with more people than a lot of ministers I know. And I get some funniest reactions from people of what the picture of God is. And the kind of people we are, which I outlined a few moments ago by characters, you were like a bunch of kids who never had grown up, and I have never seen anybody grow up in the area either. Well, like a bunch of kids. And uh, we're an emotional bunch, and we... Uh, it moves very easily, and uh, we live by emotion, and we live by feeling. And yet, some of these people coming in about God and what their conception of Him is, you get some real funny pictures, real peculiar ones. They're not to be laughed at. This is very natural that we should be this way. But we have to get a now here we're at to make a decision to turn our will and our life over the care of this ethereal creature out in the blue yonder here, whom we know a little bit, and probably scared of, 
a very suspicious of and probably think, think that he probably been abused by. But now, could I wear a rifle as this creature? Believe me, if that little sentence in that first chapter isn't holding good with us, we're not about to do this. We're not going to do it. This is where the men and the boys start to separate in their This is where we start taking a stand. This is the first drawing of faith on a little bit of grass. All right, suppose the fellow gets past that and gets into his first step. Because we need a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. A searching and fearless moral inventory. We want to find out what we have to work with. It's pretty difficult sometimes to find any moral fiber that's worth thinking of. But there's always something there. Believe me, there is. This doesn't mean we have to get up and call all about all the dirty lousy things we've done all our lives. God knows most of us can't remember half the things we've done. But we have to find out what we have to work with. Searching and serious more in the care of ourselves. And I might say at this point that I don't think there's anything worthy or any that's capable of taking that inventory by himself. He just is not honest enough and he can't see straight enough to do it. He needs help. He needs counsel. He needs a sponsor. He needs a counselor to help him. Someone who's experienced in these things and these ways of life. Someone who's had experience and has had benefit of it and can help him in whom he has confidence. It doesn't necessarily have to be another area. It could be a somewhat effective counselor. Uh, but he should have someone help him. And the first step suggests that there is someone helping him because it says in that first step he admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being. The exact nature of our wrong. So we go on record. He faced the issue, like the little girl did this morning to talk. He faced things eventually. That's how she remembered. Now, let's say, this is how he expects a word is for the extremists, the alcoholics who can't do things by halfway measures. It says we were entirely ready, entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. Doesn't say that we're getting ready or going to be ready, or we're going to remove some of these defects. It says we were entirely ready to have God remove, not us, but God remove all these defects. We're ready to do that. We're not a of readiness, we're waiting. So, text 7 says we humbly ask for We humbly ask Him to remove our shortcomings. We didn't make a deal with Him like. We heard about last night, making a deal to do this. We just humbly asked him. Okay, now we have submitted ourselves, we've submitted our wills and our life to the care of God, and we've done something about it. So that's the second phase. First phase is why we first call phase of restitution. No one can start a new life without cleaning up this garbage from the old. We can't tear this stuff over with it. We can't do it. So we have to make an effort to make things right with people we've harmed. Obviously, we don't know all the people we've harmed. We don't know if we ever find them. Didn't know them again. Didn't know them we don't know. But we said here we have this attitude of willingness here. 
So we get to step nine and something has happened. We're done with this stuff. We've done our thing. We've made our stand. We submit our Lord our life to care of God. He has taken things away from us. He's removed these things for us. In this step back here, it says about humbly asking in step seven to remove these shortcomings. The good book promises us that we ask believing we shall receive. So we have to assume that we're forgiven all this stuff. After it's all done, we're done. From now on, we're in a new life. After nine steps, you're in a new life. Now here's what we do. The last phase of this is step of construction. This covers the tenth, eleventh, and twelfth steps. Jesus. That's where we construct a life, where we build, where we grow. These are the steps that keep us going, and keep us alive, and keep us serviceable, and keep us servicing, and keep us worshiping. Listen carefully to what these steps say, because these are the steps we live by. People say, when all these people give you a talk about they want to do two or three steps, they never got past the second step, or they never got past this step. What the heck are talking about? Here are nine steps. If you want to belong to every area, this is the way to go. Then something will happen. You're a different person. You feel differently. You're, you act differently. You walk differently. Everything is different. You're a new person. I learned this thing about a new person from a child in Akron. And I was quite new, probably six months old in AA. And that's how I said, and it's all, it's so damn hard. So he spent a lot of time with me. He used to somehow really like me, I don't know why, but I had scared this guy all the time. He was a great big gorilla. And he always used to get me a corner after meeting and talk to me. Bill had been put in a nut house by his family. They had probated him, and he was supposed to stay in his nut factory for the rest of his life. The Doc Smith, my sponsor, got him out of there and put him in the group. And Bill stayed close to the day he died. And Bill is a very well-kept character. And I don't know why he took such an interest in me. Probably he just liked to pick up old dogs and cats and things, and I looked like one of them, maybe. But as he died with me, he liked me. And that was his way of touching me, I guess. So one night at a meeting, after a meeting, he got me in a corner. He says, Clarence, he says, I'm going to give you the answer to this whole ball out. He says, I'm going to give you the answer. because I'm going to give you something here. And I want you to read it. I want you to memorize it. I don't want you to ever forget it. But here's the answer to the whole ball out. So I can still see Bill, but it's just like it was yesterday. It was many years ago. He took out this old beat-up billfold of his, and it was all crammed full of papers and pictures and other debris of different kinds he had in there. No money, but all kinds of stuff he had stuff in there. He unloaded this whole bunch of stuff and piled it on the table, on the library table, in the Henry living room. He finally comes a little paper that he wanted to find, the thing he was looking for, and he handed it to me. That's the Bible verse. This Bible verse read this. This is the second Corinthians, the fifth chapter, and the 17th verse. Says, therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Now, think about that. That is the answer to our problem. You tell me what it is. 
If change is taking place, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Any man comes in here and admits and submits makes his restitution as a new creature. All things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. This is a story. All right. So we're on these last three steps. Listen to this. I got off the track here a little bit, but we got another hour and a half to go.
Maybe you get an education. That's pretty good. That's that be a good event. Well, then you get married. Well, one, two, six times. Those are big events. Those usually are pretty important, at least. You might have a family. That's, that's important. Maybe you'll have a million dollars. I don't know any woman that did, but I know a lot of I never met one that did. But that would be a big event if it did. Then you die. That's a big event. Starting something new again. So how many big things happen to us? Every day, every day, no matter what your situation, where you are, whether you're a housewife, whether you're a servant, whether you're out, whether you're out working in a shop, or you're working in a store, an office, whatever. Every day there are hundreds of little things to contend with. There are things we have to deal with every day. They're little things, little things. And these associations we have with people are what's going to make us a purpose. It's the habits and the patterns we get into and form. It's going to be the difference. So it behaves us every night, and that's our night day. We have very poor memories. We are experts at blocking everything, everything, and finding excuses for us that we can justify anything. Our memories are so bad that I can't even remember my middle name sometimes when somebody asks me. Uh, we are not known for, we don't have this elephant gift of memory. And probably is a good thing. Uh, so we should check up every night on ourselves. Not that things get away from us because patterns can be set very easily. I know very well. I know a lot about that. Step 11. This is called the 11th step. The truth here. What is the 11th step? Listen to this 11th step. This is a very important step. This is the middle one in our steps and our famous instructions. It is that that introduces us to a prayer life. It introduces us. It says in this step, we stop through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God. Praying only for knowledge of his work and how to carry it out. Let's break that down a little bit. We stop through prayer and meditation. Not just prayer, they mean that prayer and meditation. What is prayer and what is meditation? talking to God and meditation is listening to him. It's just that simple. We can talk all we want with to God, but if we don't listen to get the answer, what's the use of talking to him in the first place? We might as well have a monologue. We have an answer in our sight that we could be fair. So we stop. We call meditation. What are we speaking to this talking and listening to him? Right here, as close as anybody. There's a good book that's close to the hand of peace. 
We have this conscious contact. We know, we know the earth, but God, we believe it. We don't believe it with death, because we already accepted we're back there before. So we're starting this conscious contact between talking and listening to him. This is a practice we must indulge in regularly, not just next. This is one of the disciplines that we have to impose upon ourselves. So what are we trying to do? Pray. What are we praying for? We're praying only for knowledge of God's will for us and the power to carry it out. We want to know what he wants us to do. What does he want me to do? The good book tells us you'll never require anything else that he wants you to start to perform. So we ask him for the power to carry out his wishes. In other words, we're going to serve him the rest of our lives. This is what we're going to do. This is what the meaning of a changed life is. All right. What does it say in the 12th step? You hear people talk about 12th step, and this is most ridiculous. Some of the things you hear about 12th step is, you wonder what you're talking about. People come to me and they say, why are you supposed to go on 12th step work? <laughs> why, I'm not going to read this program. It'll tell you when to go. Retreat. 
I get a tremendous boost out of going to retreat. I'm a fortunate person in that I have been around this fellowship a long time. I do have a lot of friends, and I do get invited to go around this part of activity pretty well all over the country. This has happened to me. I'm very fortunate. And I get to see a lot of people and meet a lot of people. And I know their hopes and I know their aspirations. I know their fears. And I talk to them about it. I know what makes people take in this. I know what makes people happy in this. And I know when I meet happy people in there, I know if I had made them that way. I know it's their attitude and the way they feel and it changes come over them. It empowers them to love. This is a program of love and service. You talk all the time about love. People are pretty vague about it. And in this fellowship, we can't be vague about love. This is a program and a way of life that requires loving specific people. Not loving everybody per se. Loving specific people and devoting ourselves to their betterment, to their home. The great thing. Uh, AIDS and AA, some people say, don't mean anything. That's a lot of hogwash. Means an awful lot. Usually the ones that say, don't get any AIDS, you know, the ones that are harder to mean anything. But I'll tell you what it means. It means that you have opportunity of meeting people, sharing with them, loving them, and being loved. It means that you have friends. You can go out and meet a group of people after you're around long enough. You find someone who touched your life. And you find people who like each other. Uh, you can't sell a chart. It means something. They say, well, the guy takes credit for this and that. There isn't a matter of taking credit for anything. I remember sitting standing up there. See, we got another hour. I remember standing up there in Toronto. I was supposed to uh, get together. I think Shindig up in Toronto two weeks ago. I looked out over this crowd. This is a midnight meeting, if you can imagine this. There were seats for 2,500 people in this hall, and there's about four or 500 of them standing up around the hall this night at midnight. These people have to be nuts to do this, you know. And we had a meeting that lasted until 2 o'clock in the morning, three or four to 10 now. I looked out over this crowd, and I met, I saw people there, like many, many years ago. So it was 25, 26 years ago. Still sober. Still enjoying this way of life. Getting up there and having a great time. I see those people, there's seven of them, sitting in the first few rows, who I saw from in there. They've been in there that long. Right in the first few rows, there were other people started around too. Had a lot of years too. So I saw those people when they came in originally, as many years ago. 
I know the situation. I knew the situation then. What the circumstances were at the time. I know what happened to him down through the years. But these things uh, do something. This is one of the advantages of having years in AA. Those people inspire me. What inspiration can I get out of seeing some jughead come in here bouncing in and out like a yo-yo? I don't see the area. It's not inspiring to me. Somebody come in, maybe he's been bouncing around like a yo-yo, but he comes in and takes a band or something and devotes himself to something. And his life is changed and he serves his thoughts and his life. This is inspiration. It's been very nice talking to you. I hope that we all get together again. I hope you all take time next spring to this retreat down at Camp Monroe. You get a big kick out of that. It isn't as elaborate as this. It's a little rustic, but it's wonderful. And, uh, if you can't make that, it's all to be here next year again. Thank you very much.